0: But again, I'm all about setting realistic expectations here, okay? So first-time moms have about three times the risk of tearing than moms who have birthed fashionally before, okay? In fact, if you are a first-time mom, you have about an 85% chance that you'll have some sort of tear, okay? But remember, it's most likely going to be a first or a second-degree tear, okay? You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Teen. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. What are we talking about? Tearing! What are we going to do? Not be afraid of it anymore. <laughs> I'm in a weird mood today, guys. Just fair warning this episode, it's going to be good, okay? We're going to be talking about tearing, but. You guys know I got recently diagnosed with ADHD, and I've been taking this medication called Wellbutrin. You're probably familiar with it. It's antidepressant, but off-label, it helps with ADHD symptoms. And I'm feeling great. Like, I'm feeling really great, but it's actually making my ADHD symptoms worse. So I feel like a space cadet. I'm in a good mood all the time, but I'm just, like, really spacey. So I'm sorry if this episode is kind of all over the place. I'm going to try and stay on track, though. And talk to you guys about tearing. So how to prevent tearing during birth? I get this question in my Instagram DMs at least a dozen times every week, guys. It's I get it, right? The thought of tearing your vagina is, it's terrifying, okay? Like you sprain your knee and that hurts. And if you think that that might possibly happen to my vagina ow, that sounds scary, right? Especially as a first time mom, you never had a baby and just like, whoa. Okay. I get it. The thing is though, that tearing during labor is actually really common. Okay. In fact, more than four out of five first time moms will experience a tear during labor, but over 96% of those tears are very minor. And I will get into the specifics of all of that. So take a deep breath, okay? I'm not saying that to scare you that, you know, like four out of five first-time moms are gonna tear. I'm not saying that to scare you. But my hope is that knowing just how common tearing is will help relieve some of your anxiety about it. I also want you to understand that even though it happens to most of us, Most won't experience any lasting complications, okay? So in this podcast, I am going to go over the ins and outs of tearing, all the different types of ways to tear, how to prevent tearing, if there is such a thing, we'll get into that, okay? How to care for perineal tear if you do wind up tearing during birth, and more. My goal with this episode is to rid that fear of tearing from your brain, okay? So are you ready to talk vaginal tears? Let's do it. So tell me, are you one of an estimated 80% of pregnant women that's hoping to give birth without an epidural? I hate to break it to you, but simply wanting it might not be enough. After the unmedicated birth of my first son, Walter, I knew I had to create an affordable online birth class designed just for moms that wanted to do the same. And that's how Birth It Up, the natural series was born. Learn more about how to make your dream of a natural hospital birth a reality at slash natural birth. You can totally do this and we can help. All right. How to prevent tearing during birth. I told you, I'm sorry. This episode is going to be kind of all over the place. It's fine. No, it's not. I can stay on track. It's good. All right. So let's talk about tearing. So. Before we get into the prevention, I know that's the thing that most people are interested in, like how to actually prevent tearing during birth. I want you to first, though, understand what vaginal tears are all about, okay? I think a lot of us hear the word tear, tear, and we're just like, What do you mean, tear? Like, is it like a paper cut or is it like a scratch or is it like a rug burn? So let's unpack this a little bit, okay? Vaginal tears are scored on a, perineal tears are scored on a scale of one to four degrees based on their severity, okay? A first degree tear is the least invasive and a fourth degree tear is the most invasive. I mentioned it in the intro, but it bears, you know, repeating in the episode, Only 2 to 4% of all tears, though, during birth are third or fourth degree tears, okay? This means, let's do some math, quick math, this means you have over a 96% chance of not tearing to your butthole, okay? And that is a stat worth focusing on. All right, so another journal article that I will link in the show notes page if you want to check it out. That article studied or that study studied over 38,000 singleton vaginal births and found that only 0.25% of women sustained a third or fourth degree tear. So as you can see, the odds are seriously, you know, really in your favor. All right, so let's go over first, second, third, fourth, you know, just at face value. So first degree tears, first degree tears, like I said, are the least severe and involve only the perineal skin. Okay. This one, I really like to explain it. It's really just kind of like a rug burn, you know, it just kind of gets underneath the skin a little bit. The perineum is the area between, if you just think about your anatomy. Okay. The perineum is the area between your vaginal opening and the rectum. It includes the surface skin and then the tissue directly beneath the skin. Okay. And a first degree tear is described as slight, minor, and superficial. And often this happens all the time. First degree tears, you don't even have to get stitches. They just kind of, you know, will heal on their own. If you do have a first-degree tear, though, you may experience some mild pain or stinging when you pee. This is very common. Typically, they just heal on their own within a few weeks of birth. No, you know, you still do all the aftercare with the your peri bottle, and we'll get into that too in this episode. But really, they just kind of, you know, a first-degree tear is not too big of a deal at all. All right. So second degree tear. So these tears go a little deeper into that perineal tissue and the muscle. Okay. So if you think about layer, you know, like the first kind of little layer of skin is that first degree, and then it's just going a little bit deeper. That's what they call a second degree tear. Okay. So these tears do need to be stitched close right after you give birth and your provider typically just stitches them layer by layer. But it typically doesn't take very long. They can do it in the room. They don't have to take you to the OR, or, you know, any fancy place. They can just either use the numbing like the sensation that you feel if you have an epidural they typically don't have to give any lidocaine or any extra numbing medication down there you're you're already pretty numb from your epidural so they can just kind of quickly stitch you up you might feel some pulling or some tugging kind of down there and if you don't have an epidural typically what they do is they just give you like a little quick shot of lidocaine i had this both times when i gave birth and you think ah, needle, vagina, ma, but I'm speaking from experience. It's really not that bad guys. It's like you just pushed out a baby and that was, you know, crazy. And now there's like a tiny little needle on your, trust me, it's really not that big of a deal. I know it sounds scary. Needles plus vagina equals scary, right? But it's not, I promise. All right, so once you get numbed up or once you're already numb, you know, with that epidural, your provider's just stitching up layer by layer. Honestly, it's usually about five or 10 minutes. They're just stitching up. Second-degree tears afterwards will cause you, most people will have some discomfort, like mild pain and stinging, especially stinging when you urinate, okay? And they usually, just like first degrees, they will heal on their own within a few weeks of delivery, with typical aftercare instructions, sometimes, you know, take a little bit longer than if you had a first degree, but typically it's a few weeks and you start to, you know, be really feeling like normal. All right. So let's get into the third degree tears. So remember the second degree tears that we just talked about is the big majority, Okay. So these third degree tears are only about, you know, two to 4% of people. And that's not to say, you know, I'm not trying to diminish the moms that have had these happen because this, you know, these definitely happen, but just going into it, I don't want you to, this to be like, you know, present, like right there on your mind. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a third or fourth degree tear. So a third degree tear extends through the perineal muscles and into your anal sphincter, okay, but not completely through. So your anal sphincter is the muscle, if you think about your anatomy again, so we've got your perineum, and we just talked about that it's like some skin and some muscle, a second degree tear kind of goes through that, okay? And then you've got a muscle that surrounds your butthole, okay, and that controls your bowel movements. That's like a second you know, muscle right there. So a third degree goes through your perineum and then extends into that muscle that surrounds your butthole. Third degree tears typically are more serious, but they can usually also like second and first degree tears be stitched up in the delivery room right after you give birth. They usually just take a little bit longer, you know, 15, 30 minutes sometimes. In some cases, you may have to go to the OR, or sometimes some hospitals have like a procedure room they can bring you to, and they might have to put you under some anesthesia or just like some stronger anesthesia to help stitch you up. But typically, they can keep you in the room. Just like with a second degree tear. Third degree tears need to be stitched layer by layer. You know, they start with kind of your bottom, like the base, and then they kind of work their way up. But because the tearing is deeper and more extensive, healing can take longer typically than a few weeks. Third degree tears do come with possible complications, right? Including leaking stool, painful intercourse, even once you're cleared at six weeks postpartum. So that is definitely something to know. And I would hope that your provider is telling you this at discharge and telling you also at your six week visit, like, Hey, yes, you know, you're kind of at that point where if you feel like resuming sex, it's okay, but you still, you know, might have some healing to do. All right, so now let's finish with the fourth degree tear. So this type of tear extends completely through the anal canal or rectum, okay and you will most likely have to be repaired by your provider in, like I said, this procedural room or in the OR. They can't really it's not super safe to do these in your right in your delivery room. Some providers do, it's not impossible. Some providers do stitch a fourth degree tear in the delivery room, but typically you will be moved somewhere else. Fourth degree tears sometimes do require specialized repair depending on how deep and extensive the tear is. Okay. And fourth degree tears often come with complications such as fecal incontinence and painful intercourse. Makes sense because this tear is tearing all the way. You know, you have a hole between your vagina and your anus. Healing from a fourth degree tear will take longer than a few weeks. But the timeline is often unique for each mom, okay? Some fourth-degree tears, it's, I'm not going to say a walk in the park. It must never really walk in the park. But some fourth-degree tears within a few weeks, within a couple months, after you have a baby, you're starting to kind of feel normal. Other moms still have pain for a really, really long time, okay? I always recommend... Honestly, even if you have a first or second degree tear, it's always a great idea to see a pelvic floor health specialist after birth, but especially if you have one of these more severe tears, a third or fourth degree tear, if you have a pelvic health specialist and therapist in your area that you can set up an appointment with, they are amazing and they can really do some rehab with these women who have these types of tears. All right. So let's talk about what happens if you do experience a more severe tear. During labor, okay? So if you experience one of those third or fourth degree tears, the repair will be a bit more extensive. Like I said before, it's possible that your provider will stitch you right up in the delivery room after you give birth, but they also might have you go to the OR or another procedural room to repair you with anesthesia, okay? Usually moms who experience a third or fourth degree tear are given a dose of antibiotics too after delivery to help prevent any sort of infection from developing. And this is because these tears are a little bit deeper, right? And they have a higher likelihood of becoming infective. So we're just kind of proactively, you know, giving you a little antibiotics just to make sure everything's okay because we don't want to get any infections down there. That's not fun. Healing will take a bit longer and we'll want to check on you more frequently, okay? So with a more serious tear, your provider will almost always want to see you back in the office a few weeks after your delivery to make sure things are healing smoothly, okay? It's usually they check on you at like a two to two and a half week mark and then they'll see you at your six week visit. So between your birth and that checkup, so don't hesitate to call. Okay. If you have any concerns about how your tear is healing. Okay. Be sure to, to ask about red flags and warning signs to look out for before you get discharged from the hospital so that you know when to call. I would hope that they would make this aware to you, but it's always good to, you know, kind of know and ask, right? Most important thing, moms who have third or fourth degree tears, very, very important to be taking stool softeners, okay? If you have either a third or a fourth degree tear, you do not want to mess with being constipated, okay? Honestly, it's it's important and recommended for any type of tear to be taking stool softeners. I tell everybody this, like regardless of if you tear or not, like it's, it's just stool softeners are just great after birth. But especially if you are unfortunately have a third or fourth degree tear, you better be taking those stool softeners twice a day or however much the bottle says, because yeah, you don't want to get, be getting constipated. That is no fun. Okay. So let's move on to risk factors. So your biggest risk factor, this is honestly, it makes sense once you understand it, but a lot of people are surprised when I say this, this risk factor. So your biggest risk factor for tearing is being, just being a first time mom. Okay. Unfortunately, I know that's an unavoidable risk. Okay. But again, I'm all about setting realistic expectations here, okay? So first-time moms have about three times the risk of tearing than moms who have birthed vaginally before, okay? In fact, if you are a first-time mom, you have about an 85% chance that you'll have some sort of tear, okay? But remember, it's most likely going to be a first or a second-degree tear, okay? So a lot of times people think, well, I tore with my first baby, So that probably makes me more likely to tear with my second or my third baby, right? And it's actually the opposite. Nope. Just because you've torn a first time does not make you any more likely, unless you've had a severe tear. When we talk about severe tears, you are a little bit more likely to have a severe tear the second or the third time around than someone who hasn't had had a severe tear before. But if you are a second time mom or your third time mom or however many time moms, you avoided the biggest risk, right? First time moms, unfortunately, have the biggest risk of tearing. Okay, so moving on with risk factors, a few other risk factors, let's talk about that will increase your likelihood of having a perineal tear are if you have a vacuum or forceps delivery, assisted, you know, assisted delivery. If your baby is large, over eight and a half pounds, okay? If you are pushing for a long time, prolonged second stage of labor, so you're pushing, I think the stat is like more than two hours pushing. If you are of Asian ethnicity, they find that Asian ethnicity do have a higher likelihood of having tears. I think it has something to do with the elasticity of your skin. If you have an OP baby, okay, so remember OP babies, occiput posterior position, babies are sunny side up. That means when your baby came out of you, it was looking up at the sky. It was not looking down. Okay. And that just causes you to tear a little bit more because that's not the typical position. Most of the time, babies are looking down when they come out. Obviously, if you have an episiotomy during your birth, you know, as you're pushing, you will have a higher likelihood of... Tearing, but you'll have a higher likelihood of having like a third or fourth degree tear. Okay. So if you have an episiotomy during your birth, let's say your provider, you know, there's an emergency or for whatever reason they say we recommend an episiotomy, that is automatically a second degree tear. Okay. They just cut into your perineum when they do an episiotomy, but an episiotomy does put you at a higher likelihood of having one of those severe tears because it's basically like they're kind of starting the second-degree tear and it's just easier for it to continue to tear. And then finally, large infant head circumference, right, I mean, that kind of makes sense. (laughs) Having a shoulder dystocia, so that's when the baby's head comes out and there's an extended time period between the baby's head and the baby's body. And really the main reason why You might have a higher risk of tearing with shoulder dystocia babies because sometimes we have to do certain maneuvers to get baby out safely. So your provider might have to cut an episiotomy or, you know, flip you around in different positions or just do certain interventions that can increase your likelihood of tearing. And then finally, I know I said finally, but this really is the last point, last risk factor, epidural use. Yeah. So this has been shown slightly, slightly, okay, to increase the risk of a severe tear for a few different reasons. Okay. So, but this is not to say, you know, if you're terribly afraid of tearing and you're like, oh no, now I'm now she's telling me I can't get an epidural because I'm increasing my risk of getting a tear. No. Okay. This slightly increases it, but it should not... Like just because you're afraid of this happening should not dictate what your pain, you know, control choice is during your birth. Just nice to know, right? All right. So let's talk about prevention. I have seven ways to prevent tearing during birth. Okay. So now that we've laid through this foundation about what tearing during your birth is all about, okay, and the fact that it's super common, happens to a lot of women, let's get into how to actually prevent tearing. So there is a good chance you may not be able to completely 100% prevent tearing if you are giving birth for the first time. Remember, the stat is like 85% of first-time moms are going to tear, okay? But what you can do is aim to prevent a more severe tear from happening. So We are going to go through these one through seven. The first one is my favorite that I try to do with all of my moms, unless there's not enough time and she's just, you know, pushes once and her baby comes out. But number one is a warm compress as you are pushing. So while you are pushing, ask your nurse or your doula, if you have a doula, if they can assist you in applying heat to your perineum. This can simply just be a washcloth that is soaked in warm water. I just saw, I'm in this group on Facebook called Labor and Delivery Nurses Rock. Love that group, by the way. If anybody's listening who's in that group, there's just so much great info in that group. But somebody just asked the other day about like, what do you guys do for, you know, warm compresses and people are saying oh I fill up a basin of warm water oh I put a warm washcloth in like a plastic bag and that keeps it warmer for longer oh I use the infant heel warmers so there's like little heel warmers that you can get from our supply and those stay warm for a while so people are just throwing all this stuff out there so I thought it was a really cool post side note right I told you this ADHD, it's crazy. (laughs) So anyways, back to warm compresses as you're pushing. So there's actually a lot of research out there that proves just how effective a warm compress is at reducing the risk of tearing or like I said, of a more severe tear, okay? What's more, it can help with the pain of pushing and crowning too. Great, right? Like helps with your tearing and it helps with pain and as baby's coming out. So I really like doing this with my patients, especially if they're pushing for a long time, extended amount of time, just kind of keep a little basin of water right next to me in a few washcloths and kind I of keep dipping and then I'll go over and, you know, fill up the water again. This really helps because heat helps to dilate the blood vessels in the area, which relaxes them, right? And makes you less susceptible to a tear. Kind of cool. Alright, the sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. All right, so this one was an email I got from a gal that took our course. She said, hi there. I just wanted to reach out to share my birth experience. First time mom here. After taking your natural course, I felt prepared to do my best to have an unmedicated birth, but also felt prepared if I were to change my mind. I experienced a week and a half of prodromal labor. Yikes. (laughs) Only knew what this was thanks to following your Instagram page, so thank you, which was so challenging. I'm sure that is a very long time. I finally went into labor overnight at 39 weeks and two days and did not wake my husband for several hours because I was convinced it would slow down as it had many times that week prior. Makes sense. This time it did not though. I labored at home utilizing some of the techniques you taught and was four centimeters dilated and 80% effaced when I got to the hospital. They ended up breaking my water once I was five centimeters dilated. Labor really picked up after that, but I was able to utilize several of the pain management techniques you teach. And my husband was a pro at doing counter pressure after taking your class. Love that. I love some Pro counter pressure partner, love it. <laughs> he felt so well prepared to help me manage the pain. I was able to be up and moving around, utilizing hands and knees, etc. About an hour and a half after my water was broken, I was nine centimeters dilated. Woohoo! That's awesome! I then laid on my side with the peanut ball between my legs and transitioned very quickly to being ready to push. I pushed for 10 minutes or so and our beautiful baby girl arrived. She is healthy and thriving. I recommend your class to everyone I know that is pregnant. Thank you to being committed to education through all of the platforms that you utilize, Instagram, podcasts, courses, etc. We are so grateful that we were able to go into the labor and delivery process feeling prepared and equipped after taking your course. That is just so nice. That's such a sweet, oh, I love that. Thank you so much to this gal sending that through. If you want to check out the course that she took, she took Birth It Up, the natural series, and you can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the natural series. All right, let's get right back into this week's episode. So how do you make this part of your birth plan, right? How do you like voice that you actually want to do this? You really don't need anything fancy. Like I said, just a little basin of warm water and some warm washcloths will do. And actually on that thread, a lot of people said (laughs) crockpots, like because crockpots like stay warm, right? But sometimes you're not allowed to bring things like that, that plug in that are cooking appliances. So I would just check before doing the crockpot route. And also crockpots sometimes can get really, really, really hot. So I would be afraid to use a crockpot because you might like kind of burn yourself. Okay. But I have seen people recommend that not only in that thread, but I've heard that like previously, like before seeing this thread that I saw yesterday. So a good way to make sure you want your nurses to know that you want to do this while you're pushing is just put it on your birth plan. We have a nice little birth plan template that you can download and there's a perfect place to just say, Hey, can we do this while I'm pushing? Heard that heard from the mommy labor nurse podcast that it reduces tearing can we do it? And your nurse will say, sure. Why not? Love it. Let's do it. All right. Number two, perineal massage during your pregnancy. So what is that? Okay. Perineal massage aims to prepare your perineum for the intense stretching that occurs during your birth, right? Basically what you do is you routinely stretch the tissues, the muscles, all that skin that surround your birth canal, your vagina, right? To get it ready for a baby to emerge from it. So a lot of people think like, okay, does this really even help if I'm stretching beforehand? But there's evidence to show that it will help, but there's like a specific amount that you're supposed to do and how many minutes and how many times a week. Okay. So perineal massage is an ancient practice that has been used in a variety of different cultures for many centuries, which I think is really cool. And actually research like I said, supports that they might have been onto something all these years ago. (laughs) So according to the American Pregnancy Association, if you practice regular perineal massage in the three to four weeks prior to your birth, leading up to your birth, you will increase your likelihood of a vaginal birth without damage to your perineum. This means a decreased risk for tearing and or the need for an episiotomy. However, Perineal massage during birth doesn't seem to make much of a difference on tearing, okay? Most research studies concluded that the use of perineal massage while you're in labor won't have a positive impact on your likelihood of tearing, which kind of makes sense because like it's more important to steadily kind of doing it, you know, leading up to birth instead of trying to do it all right before your baby comes out of you. All right, so I'm going to talk about the like how to actually do it. But I did want to say before I get into that, that this is from evidence-based birth. If you guys listened to that podcast or you know of that website, big fan of them. She has a really detailed article on perineal massage and tearing. And from that article, she referenced a couple of studies and it looks like that. So it's not about like doing it a bunch of times a week before you give birth is going to be more effective. It actually found that the more frequently women massage, the less likely they were to see the benefits. So decrease in tear, you know, they even talked about perineal pain at three months. So yeah, it's kind of like backwards, but evidence-based birth says women who massage an average of one and a half times per week, okay, had a 17% reduced risk of perineal trauma and a 17% risk, reduced risk of episiotomy. Women who massage between one and a half to 3.4 times per week had an 8% reduced risk of perineal trauma. And interestingly, like I said, women who massage more than three and a half times per week experience no benefits and had a longer pushing phase of labor by an average of 10 minutes. So weird, okay? So basically, the findings of these studies was the less frequent the massage, the better off the outcomes. So really just doing it You know, one to two times a week is your best breath. All right, so let's talk about how to actually do perineal massage. So, first, I want you to wash your hands, okay? Find a comfy position, take some deep breaths. You wanna be in a nice, comfy position, typically on on your back. You know, you can do it lying on your back, like in your bed, or if you're in the bathtub or even in the shower, you can kind of put your one leg up. So, be in a nice, comfortable position, nice and relaxed. Okay. And then you're going to use a lubricant. Okay. So either if you have a water soluble lubrication at home or olive oil works really well, plain old olive oil that you can just get at the store. So what you're going to do is you're going to lube up your fingers, okay, and insert both of your thumbs one to one and a half inches inside your vagina, and then you're going to press both thumbs along the back wall of your vagina. I'm like doing it now, but you can't see me, I know. So you're going to not actually, I'm not actually doing it in my vagina. see, I told you guys this episode. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I'm demonstrating it in front of me with my thumbs. Okay. So insert both of your thumbs one to one and a half inches inside your vagina and press both your thumbs along the back wall of your vagina. So like you're pushing kind of like down. Okay. Okay. So, you're going to apply firm and steady pressure so that you feel a stretch. Okay. You want it to be kind of a little bit uncomfortable, but you don't want to stretch it all the way so you're like screaming, you know, for mercy. Okay. We don't want to do that. You want to push down. Okay. Keep your fingers in this position for one to two minutes or for as long as you can, you know, handle it and continue to push your fingers down and then start to move your thumbs apart and back together, kind of like in a U or like a C shape. So one thing that you can do while you're doing this is do some slow, deep breathing while you do these massages, relax your pelvic floor, okay? We want to not be super tense and, you know, tensing up. You want to do some deep breathing and relaxation and, yeah, do this little Perineal massage with your thumbs. It's real easy. And then, also, big tip don't do it for more than five minutes. A couple minutes, one to two times a week. That's all you need to do. Okay, last tips about perineal massage. So if you can't get into that position, I know how it is being nine months pregnant. Okay, sometimes it's hard to stick both of your thumbs in your vagina. So consider enlisting the help of your partner. If you have a partner, I wouldn't ask your best friend or, (laughs) I mean, you can ask your best friend, maybe they'll come and help you out. But if you have a partner, I think they're probably the best one to do it, right? (laughs) Another tip, you don't have to lie down while you do this. Like I said before, you can do it in the shower and that's, you know, it only takes a few minutes. So you just take a little bit longer shower, right? So all you do is kind of put your one leg up or you can even just squat in the shower. And then finally, a last tip, hey, practice your breathing and your relaxation techniques for contractions while you perform your perineal massage. It's not, you know, this feeling that you're feeling is not going to be like a contraction, but it's a little bit uncomfortable. So it's worth, hey, doing some deep breathing, relaxation while you're doing your perineal massage. Okay. The next five are much more anecdotally based. Is anecdotally a word? I don't know. Okay. So the next one is get sexually aroused during labor. Oh, did you really believe that was going to come out of my mouth? Is that really a thing? Yes, actually it is. <laughs> so Ida may Gaskin, if you guys know who she is, she wrote a really, really awesome book on that I recommend to anybody who's trying to go, really anybody, but anybody who's trying to go unmedicated during birth should read. So she talks about this, okay? When you are sexually aroused, you naturally produce more lubrication and the walls of your vagina become a bit bit thicker and elongated and more elastic because it thinks something's about to go inside of it, right? Okay. So I know this is like kind of weird, right? But I did want to just say this point because like it makes sense, right? I know that not many moms are gonna get sexually aroused during birth, but orgasmic birth is a thing, right? It's rare, but it's a thing. And Ina May Gaskin, in her book, she's like, "Orgasmic birth, ladies, never tear. I've never seen any of them tear." It makes sense. All right, number four can train with an EpiNo. What is that? Okay. So I actually don't have any personal experience with this one. Okay. I've never even put my hands on an EpiNo, but research does show that this little device seriously works. So an EpiNo is a pelvic floor trainer. Pelvic floor therapists use these It's basically a soft silicone balloon that you insert into your vagina, okay? Inflates slowly to help stretch and strengthen the muscles in your pelvic floor in preparation for birth. It's recommended to use throughout your pregnancy to exercise the pelvic floor muscles, but you only inflate it slightly, okay? And then beginning in about week 36 of your pregnancy, then you switch to its stretching exercise function Wherein you like gradually increase the size of the balloon until your muscles are ready for that full 10 centimeter dilation. I promise the balloon doesn't get to 10 centimeters. I don't think it does, at least. I mean, that would be a little crazy, but it just kind of prepares for things, right? So it looks like clinical trials. Let me click on this list. This is not from the EpiNo site. You know, sometimes sites, they say, we had these studies, but it's like studies that they did. So it's a little bit biased. So it looks like this study was not by the EpiNo that I can tell. And this clinical trial shows that 70% of first-time moms who trained with an EpiNo had no tearing. Wow. That's pretty great. So, hey, if you want to get your hands on one of these, cool. All right. Number five, the position that you push can play a role. Okay. So it's actually been shown that squatting while giving birth can make your chances of tearing a little bit worse, which makes sense because there's this thing called gravity, right? Squatting isn't the same though as hands and knees. Okay. And on the other hand, pushing on hands and knees may also be associated with a less likelihood of tearing. And it's a great way to give birth. Really lots of people give birth on hands and knees. And actually any supported kneeling position draped over the top of the bed, you know, draped over a birthing ball, a supported sitting position, side lying position, all these positions where you're not squatting or you're basically not squatting or you're not on your back can minimize your risk for tearing. So if you think about it, squatting and bearing down, right, puts a whole lot more pressure on your perineum. And like I said, gravity is your friend when giving birth, right? Like gravity is good, but gravity might not be your friend when it comes to tearing. Okay. So gravity your baby's friend, but not your vagina's friend. <laughs> Maybe I should name the episode that. <laughs> Weird mood today, guys. <laughs> I know I've said that like five times, but... All right. Number six, decrease your likelihood of getting an episiotomy, right? So we talked about episiotomies before that when you get an episiotomy, it is already a second degree tear. So if you can do things that are going to prevent your likelihood of getting an episiotomy, it's going to help prevent your risk of tearing. Like I said, episiotomies can really increase your risk for a severe tear, but once you're opened up a little bit, you know, it can just keep on tearing. I think I said that before. So what is the easiest way to avoid this? Talk about it. Talk about it with your provider. Do a little research on their episiotomy stats. If your provider has a higher than average episiotomy rate, might be worth looking into switching providers, right? I mean that's a very very easy way to prevent your like your likelihood of having a severe tear if you're if you're with a provider who has a high episiotomy rate. It's a good thing that you know that, right? All right, the final one, this one is a little bit far fetched, okay? Eat protein. <laughs> so, I heard this from a doctor that I work with, okay? And it totally makes sense if you think about it, this is not based in evidence, but making sure that you're adequate in your protein intake it promotes tissue health and elasticity overall in your body. Okay. So why wouldn't it promote tissue health and elasticity in your perineum? Right. So along with adequate protein consumption, make sure you are of course staying hydrated, consuming a well-balanced healthy diet that all contributes also to, you know, tissue health and elasticity, but yeah, protein, All right, so finally, we are gonna talk about how to take care of a perineal tear if you end up having one. So I already said this before when we were talking about third and fourth degree tears, make sure you take those stool softeners, Colace, love it. (laughs) So the main thing you need to be focused on is taking those stool softeners and or really upping your fiber intake. I would say and, not and or, and, really upping your fiber intake. Both of those things are great. So that first postpartum poop is no joke. Talked about that before. You do not want to bear down at all when having a bowel movement, okay? This is also important if you've got some postpartum hemorrhoids also going on down there. Colace, sulfat softeners are only going to help, okay? Load up on them. They're great. All right. Next, I want you to use the heck out of that peri bottle. Okay. If you don't know what a peri bottle is, it's basically like a giant squirt bottle, not giant, but a little handheld squirt bottle. Okay. This thing is glorious and you should try and use it every time you go to the bathroom in those first few days, you know, maybe up to a week. So urine. Is not like when you pee, it's not gonna infect your tear at all, but it can make it sting quite a bit. Okay. So if you are using your peri bottle and you know you you sit down on the toilet, right? And then you start peeing and you squirt that peri bottle like on your vagina and your perineum while you're peeing, it can help to dilute that urine. So it's a little bit more watery. And by doing that, it really cuts down on the stinging and the soreness, okay? So that's really what it's for. You can either use like lukewarm water, like, you know, room temperature water. I wouldn't use hot water and I wouldn't use like freezing cold water, somewhere in the mid range, okay? Next, I want you to get yourself some Dermoplast. What is Dermoplast, Liesl? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. Okay, so Dermoplast is it looks kind of scary, it comes in this like spray can thing, it looks like a spray paint or hairspray. But dermoplast, it numbs up that vaginal area. Okay. You spray it down there. It's like just this fabulous numbing spray that you just, I mean, just go at it, right? <laughs> it's gonna be kind of cold coming out of the can, but spray that stuff on that sucker because dermaplast is lovely, all right? So finally, then after the dermoplast, let's just recap. We're taking our stool softeners, okay? We're using our peri bottle every time we go to the bathroom. We're using our dermoplast every time we go to the bathroom. And then We can use padsicles, yeah. Padsicles are a thing, and you're gonna love them. Okay, if you don't know what they are, they're great. You basically infuse a pad with aloe, witch hazel. You can sometimes people put little essential oils on them, and you can make them pre-birth, and then just store them in your freezer. And then once you give birth, you take them out, and you can put them right in your underwear, and they feel lovely on your tear. Another thing to mention too is keeping up with your hygiene. Okay. Right. So changing your underwear and your pad every time you go to the bathroom. Well, not changing your underwear. That's kind of dumb. Changing your pad every time you go to the bathroom. All right. This episode is almost over. So the bottom line on tearing during labor, while you can't always prevent tearing during your birth, you can, like I've said, decrease your risks and decrease the damage. So hopefully this episode has cleared up some of the info out there on vaginal perineal tears. Okay. And I hope I've made them a little less frightening. Okay. Maybe it's good that I'm in this kind of mood. We're just being real lighthearted about tearing. I don't want it to be scary guys. Okay. It's going to be okay. Personally, like I've said, I've had second degree tears with both of my babies and you know, it wasn't like a walk in the park, right? It wasn't like I could get up the next day and be like, oh, my vagina feels normal. It really wasn't that bad. I really can't complain. The second time was definitely way easier because I had the experience of having a baby before. So I kind of was just more informed about how to care for a perineal tear. And I did a lot more resting and all of that good stuff. But I really can't complain. The recovery process was really not that bad for both of my second degree tears. When I had both of mine, my doctor... It was the same doctor who delivered both my babies. She was able to stitch me up just within a few minutes right after birth. Like I said, they gave me a little bit of lidocaine and my recovery was pretty easy. So yeah, I hope that this episode has helped you decrease a little bit of that fear in your brain that you have about tearing. And if you really like this episode, go leave me a little comment or something on the podcast page. Or if you, you know what? If you haven't hit the five star rating, please go do that because that helps so much. We're almost, well, not almost, but we're getting towards like a thousand reviews and it's just cool. Cause then it turns from like 900 and some odd reviews and it says one K. This sounds stupid. I'm sorry. Go hit the five star button if you enjoyed this episode. Okay guys. All right. See you next week. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com podcast for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place.